Want to hone your craft as a digital marketer and get expert insights from thought leaders and industry experts? Welcome to the How I Work podcast. I'm your host, Josh Becerra, founder and president of Agurian. Follow us on Twitter at Agurian Tweets or subscribe to our YouTube channel for more great content. Now, here's the episode of the podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Josh Becerra from Agurian. I have the pleasure to be interviewing Amber Christian today. Amber and I, we've known each other for a long time. I think we met probably eight years ago at the time you were doing SAP consulting. Amber's had 20 plus years in tech doing those SAP consultations and implementations like internationally, right? You got to go to really cool places all over the world. But now you've moved in a, a different direction. You are a founder of a software as a service company called Wonderly Software, and your first product is it's a meetings as a process software, helping people create unmissable meetings. I love that. And it's called Bella Senna. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thanks for being here, Amber. I really appreciate your time. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to talking about all kinds of fun, like where we met, which is a fun story. I even remember all the details um, as well as what I've been up to. Let's start there. What do you remember about those details? Oh, no, you're right. It was about eight years ago, I think. It was at Leadpage's unveiling of their new headquarters. That's right. Which was a massive mob of people like down the street to get into it, where they did a fireside chat with Seth Levine and Clay. And I remember eating tacos. And I remember we had scored one of the few little tables that was available. It was myself and my husband. And we were talking with you. And we were talking about both of your startups because we were also talking about the the toilet startup as well. Yes. The other thing that, <laughs> that you do. And I'm like, oh, it's so yes. interesting. <laughs> I got I got crazy stuff going on, right? So <laughs> yes, that, you that do. <laughs> startup of mine has since gone into the background and fully dedicated to the digital marketing scene yep. Yep. Uh, these days. And and you have experienced changes too since then. But why don't we start out with kind of this experience doing SAP consulting and implementations. I want to hear about like some of the coolest places you got to visit when you were doing that. (laughs) So I spent many years in the SAP world and I even still do some part-time consulting because sometimes people call me up like, pretty please, would you do this project? Sure. I know nothing huge hours or anything, but yeah, I I still do that as well because it's riding a bike once you've done some of that stuff, even though it changes some, a lot of the concepts are still the same. And is it all over the board or is it like treasury i remember oh like, it's treasury. treasury what a good memory it's yes it was treasury was my niche i was a payments nerd for many years and so what i would tell people i do is i would work inside of a corporate in their sap systems with some of the largest banks in the world so i would be working with folks from wells fargo citigroup jp morgan us bank etc yep. actually helping make sure that our suppliers could get paid payroll was getting paid. It was really all around payments technology. And I did that both in the US and then internationally. So I actually had done implementations for 65 countries, hadn't been on the ground in all of them, but I got six continents. I've actually visited six continents. I'm still missing Antarctica. If any of your listeners ever hears about an implementation in Antarctica, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. The penguins penguins need SAP for sure. 
Absolutely. Now, coolest places I've been. I had the opportunity to go to Milan, Italy for a work oh. trip yeah. and spend a couple of weeks there. I was taught the finer points of drinking espresso as well as teaching them how SAP finance systems worked. <laughs> and probably the coolest experience is when I got to go to South Africa, though. I was a, a keynote speaker at a finance conference in South Africa, and that was a pretty incredible experience. And that was actually yeah. my first trip to Africa. So that one was also memorable. I got to Did go you to spend some time outside of the conference. Then oh, you better believe it. Safari and, things, yeah. <laughs> and my husband did not complain about that trip because he came along. And so he yeah. was just a tourist the whole time and we added on vacation. And so it was a very lovely experience. Yeah. And so I got to go to a lot of fun places in Brazil and Argentina as well, China and yeah. India. So it, it was a great way to travel the world on someone else's dime. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So working with all these big kind of banks and institutions, did you have any kind of general learnings that you took from that about these companies? Did you see any like trends or similarities or things that you're like, besides, wow, these people need to know how to do meetings better, of course. <laughs> I'm sure that was a learning. But what, what else did you... I think one of the keys for me, I always go back to foundational items. Do uh -huh. you have your foundation in order? Yeah. And I would do this in a, a lot of companies. We would really relook at what their foundation is. Mm -hmm. And we would, sometimes we would re-engineer that. And the way I would describe it is a, a lot of the work that I had to do I said was akin to driving a freight train that is fully loaded yeah. on the tracks down. With gold bars. Yes. It's, uh, it's, uh, we're, and we're going all out. And my job was to figure out how to swap out train cars and keep the train on the rails. Yeah. Because that's really what we did. Because we would have to swap out their technology and add new payments technology and things and not disrupt business. Yeah. So I had to get really good at looking at and thinking about what we were doing as in terms of integrated processes. And then thinking about, do we have foundational building blocks and do our processes integrate? I used to say, do they hang together yeah. is what I would say to people. And that was a key in company after company is we always had to go back to, is your foundation right to do what you're trying to accomplish? And then do we actually, can we actually integrate? Can, that, can we get there from here yeah. <laughs> um, idea? Or do we have to add some things in order to allow us to get there from yeah. here? I like the metaphor because even like, with railroads, they spend a lot of time making sure that the tracks are well-maintained because you can't have that like foundation being rickety or having problems where it can affect the whole train. So anyway, exactly. Like and you have, you have to replace the tracks where things are not quite working so well, or the sections where they're not quite working so well. Yep. And sometimes you might have to route around it and take some detours around it that are a little more manual or cross a little more distance while you yeah. fix that section yeah. of track that isn't quite the way you wanted it to be. Yeah. We can just go down a big metaphor rabbit hole here. <laughs> um, so you did that for many years, very successfully. So what, why the shift to software as a service? What uh, intrigued you about that? Yeah. Who goes from this to this, right? Yeah. yeah. Who goes from corporate, I mean, corporate hey, Fortune 500 to saying, I'm going to go build software. <laughs> I mean, I do crazy things like you. So don't worry. I get the shifting. <laughs> but uh, but I'd, be, I'd be curious what intrigued you about software. 
Yep. In in the in my SAP career, people would always ask me, they said, gosh, you keep adding more and more countries. And they're like, wow, look at how many places you've been, how much you've done. They would say, when is it enough, Amber? Mm-hmm. And I would stare at them blankly because I would have no idea what enough was. Yeah. I I I don't I don't know. I didn't have a milestone I was trying to accomplish. I just didn't. And literally, I woke up one morning and I had this stray thought that was basically it was, well, get ready. Something else is coming. Mm-hmm. You might not be doing this SAP thing forever. There, and I thought at the time it was a very disturbing, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? No, what I'm at the top mean? of my game. I don't think I, oh, that, whatever that was, go away. No. Right. Yeah. The subconscious <laughs> was talking to you. Exactly. And I had no idea what that was going to look like, what that was going to mean, what that was going to be. I, I had no idea. Until several months later, I just had this kind of awakening about the challenges around meetings. Mm-hmm. And really, if our meetings are not functional, how much money does it actually cost us? And that actually to make them functional, there's a few things we need to do that some of us do, but most of us don't. Yeah. And that what if we actually put that in software to help us run meetings better? Yeah. I didn't have the thought of building it, though. I went looking mm-hmm. for it on the market. Then I did the traditional, duh, we stink technology. How come nobody's built this? <laughs> I'm like, why can't I, can I find this? this? And that right. was the next thought, which yeah. for me was a huge epiphany. I didn't have aspirations of being an entrepreneur to go build software. That was mm-hmm. unreal. I don't do yeah. that when people would ask me, how come you have not mm, I don't do that. Yeah. I know <laughs> but, my thing and I know right, it really well and right. it's working for me. <laughs> exactly. And I'm doing well and it's all good. I'm, I'm good here. But then the practicality was this problem boy, it just stuck in my craw. And I was like, I need to go do something about this. Yeah. And that was what was the genesis around making that that enormous switch. Yeah. That is now Wonderly Software. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you talk about being Wonderly and like human-centered software. So I wanted to unpack those things a little bit. What do you mean when you say we should be Wonderly? Yes. So this idea of being wonderly and human-centered design, one mm-hmm. of the big things I learned in consulting was that as a consultant, one of the first things I had to do when I went into an organization is actually understand their pain points and what was important to them and really what they were trying to accomplish. Yeah. It can be really easy when we have a certain skill set within certain technology and a background to say, well, yeah, you just do it this way. And we apply Mm -hmm. that same pattern to people without taking a breath to understand what is that nuance to their organization. Maybe it's that their organizational structure is a little different. The reporting structures are a little different. How the work is split up is different. So therefore it's not, it's a theme and variation of the solutions. And that when I was able to go into organizations and recognize that, we had much better odds of success because we were really addressing the pain points, which helped give us better buy-in to making the types of changes we needed to make. So when it came time to build software, I said, what if I built software taking those same ideas of talking with people, having conversations with them along the way in the journey so that we make sure we build the right product. Yeah. It's 
for a lot of founders, they say, okay, I'm going to go build my thing in my basement or I'm going to go build it quietly because I'm afraid someone's going to steal it. So I build it all the way and then I go, hey, Josh, here, use this. Isn't this great? And you're like, what? Oh, that's not the problems I have with meetings. This is, right. huh? What? Right. I can't, no. <laughs> yeah. You and need then that you're customer like, development. You need to have that conversation with the customer before right. you get to building stuff. So you spend the time learning it. And you're like, well, it's missing all these things I need. And then they have to go back and rebuild it. And then they mm -hmm. have to come back to you. And so it just creates this iteration and this disruption because now you've spent all the time to learn the one way. So human-centered design is really about taking that journey with your customers, embedding feedback into your processes as you are building so yeah. that you make sure you're solving the right problems. Doesn't mean you can solve every problem, but you make sure you're solving the most important problems. Yeah. I really and, like that. Yeah. And what's been nice about it is and people say, oh, okay, yeah, that's all nice. That's all well and good. And it takes extra time. I'm in a hurry. I say the effect we've noticed since we've come to market is the customer support side and the user experience side of it. We tend to get feedback when we show the product. It's almost anticlimactic because people will say, oh, well, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. and they pause with a confused look on their face. <laughs> like that makes perfect sense. That's like, how I should do it every time. They're like, oh, oh, okay. And, and then, but I, I thought it would be hard. We talked to a lot of people along the way, right? Yeah. So we collected feedback from over 150 people in this two-year journey be wow. between surveys, focus groups, interviews, et cetera. And over half were women as well. So mm -hmm. it was super important for us to have a variety of perspectives included in what we were doing. Yeah. And the other side of it is less support, less questions. People look at it and say, wow, it's pleasant. It, it makes yeah. sense. Right. And so it's weird. The other side would be like, yay, I built a pleasant product. But hey, if it gets the job done, that's what matters, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. This concept of unmissable meetings, I think, is also an interesting one. I know that I can be sitting in a meeting feeling like this isn't going well or what why am i sitting here what's the objective so i i imagine that is what you would characterize as a missable meeting That's <laughs> like correct. i really don't need to be here i don't <laughs> think i'm not adding any value it's not adding any value to my work but you know what characterizes then an unmissable meeting mm -hmm. one that i have to be at yes unmissable meetings have a certain set of things about them and it isn't even that it's the most fabulous conversation on the planet mm -hmm. it's that we've covered the basics we have a goal we know why we're there if you're walking into a meeting and you can't say what are we actually accomplishing with this meeting that's a problem right because your time is very valuable you have to look at it you only have so much time and energy so the first thing is having goals Unmissable meetings also communicate expectations to you. Mm -hmm. Are you supposed to prepare something? Are, do you have a speaking role? Is you have materials you're supposed to prepare? So agendas are extremely helpful. Doesn't mean you have to be draconian. They can be very simple. And we actually use design to nudge you to create agendas in our product. Right. And so the second piece is I've got an agenda. So I've managed expectations with people. I've shown the people that are in, going to be in my meeting respect by actually saying, hey, here's what I'm expecting of you as well. Yeah. The third piece is those meetings actually, you're actually doing what you said you were going to do in the meeting. 
there isn't sidecar. We're going off the road. You said yeah. the meeting was supposed to be one thing, and then we do something completely different. That drives people crazy. So what we do is we have this live meeting tracking that has your agenda on it and the items that you're going to follow up with and a heartbeat monitor that helps you stay on time. So mm. those runaways, those wordy folks, <laughs> yeah, they can, can self-regulate. You don't even have to. The beauty of it is when you go into our live meeting tracking, people self-regulate because True. they go into Bella and they see the timeline and they naturally just wrap it up when their time is up. So nobody has to be the bad guy. You don't have to say to that wordy guy that just won't be quiet. He sees it the same way you do too. So he's like, okay, let me just wrap it up. We move on. Person, whenever you're on a, a panel or speaking, there's that person in the front row who's like one minute left. So you just have somebody like that in the meeting with you at all times. <laughs> exactly. And you take the pressure off the participants to have to be the bad guy. And then yeah. that, and that takes care of a lot of other dynamics and challenges that people experience. And then what also makes a, me a meeting unmissable is understanding, having notes with it and who's going to do the follow-ups. Yeah. Actually having that called out. And so those are the main components to what makes a meeting unmissable because what's expected up front, it's actually tracked and runs on time and the outcome of it, yeah. that makes them unmissable. And that seems so simple yet not yeah. very easy to exactly. Exactly. And so we built in Bella is basically your little assistant that's helping mm -hmm. you along on that process. Cool. She's helping you structure it. She's helping you track it. She's helping you manage it. Meetings have changed, if you haven't noticed, in the last <laughs> couple of months with yep. uh, COVID-19 and social distancing. So how uh, how are you seeing meetings shifting in this new context? Is there uh, a better role then for Bella in this new context? Like. How is COVID affecting this? In the long run, COVID will be very helpful um, mm -hmm. for what I'm doing as a business. So what a lot of people did is they took their meetings online, but they didn't really go through a digital transformation of their meetings. Yeah. So what, they, what that means is, oh, I took those same old meetings that I didn't plan and I just stuck them on Zoom calls and I gave you Zoom fatigue or put them on Hangouts or Microsoft yeah. Teams or whatever. I didn't actually go back and address should we have them in the first place and the expectations with them. I think over time, what people are going to realize is those are just the rails, so to speak, but we actually have to address what it means to be successful in meeting. That's actually the next generation. That's how we stay productive as companies is we actually have to take it to the next level because yeah. now we can't yell over the wall to someone about a meeting or whatever now we actually, because we're all physically separated like that, we have to have better means of managing it. And I think that's the transformation that's still coming for people. Yeah. And I think like the follow-up piece of it gets a lot harder too, because like you said, if we're sitting a cube away from one another, we can say, hey, you were going to take care of doing that. or But now I'm sitting in my basement, you are in your home. It's not like we can easily coordinate post-meeting about certain things. Absolutely. Yep. How are things going in general with product? Where are you at in your kind of growth and life cycle? Mm -hmm. So right now, what we actually have figured out in probably the last four or five months is we're starting to spend more time focusing on the Office 365 market. Mm. And we have had an interesting set of companies starting to pop up. 
We're noticing strong interest from companies. Typically, they're in the Office 365 space using Teams and Outlook, of course. Yeah. There are also a lot of cases self-implemented EOS shops. And that's been a very interesting pattern. So trying to figure out how to find self-implemented EOS firms has really been interesting. It's just something in common that we are noticing that yeah. I think a lot of EOS folks are meeting nerds. And I say that proudly. Yeah. I, I am a so proud. The entrepreneurial operating system. I see you your traction the, book. Yeah, <laughs> right there. Uh, we shouldn't be plugging Gino, but we are an EOS company and mm -hmm. it's really been transformational for us we are not self-implementing however and we did try it once and it didn't work out as well or maybe get bella to help you i don't know yeah i think what it is why we're seeing the interest is that typically when people adopt any management methodology in a lot of cases there's corresponding software with it that has you go all the way and you're doing all of these different things and tracking all these different things and what we're learning from some of these folks that are self-implemented or that are trying to put some structure in place without a full-blown structure is that they like the fact that Bella helps them put a certain amount of structure in there without making it so difficult to do that they can't manage it. That it's a, yeah. it's a gentle way into putting more structure in their organization. And, and it can apply for multiple methodologies. Sometimes folks in the lean space are also interested in it as well, that are like, how do we strip out waste? That this is yeah. also of interest because they're trying to strip waste out of meetings as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in a lot of wasted time meetings, that's for sure. I I really love how you think and your brain and just the fact that you come out of SAP is it's pretty extraordinary. And so you've started this founded this SaaS company. You've, you've got customers now. A lot of people who watch these types of how I work videos that we're doing here are marketers. So can you tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about lead gen, customer acquisition? Is there obviously you're starting to identify maybe a trend here with mm -hmm. um, the EOS shops? Like what is working for you? Mm -hmm. What have you tried from mm -hmm. a marketing perspective? I've tried all kinds of stuff, right? Because we're supposed to run experiments. Yeah, yeah. Everybody keeps telling me we're supposed to run experiments and measure them and learn. Yep. So last year, we did a series of experiments that is still bearing fruit in an unexpected way. Okay. And it was a marketing experiment that's contributed to something much bigger, interestingly enough. Yeah. So last year I started, people tell me that I'm somewhat expressive. And so I had some folks say, you, you need to do more videos, Amber. And I was like, oh boy, okay. And so I did a series uh -huh. of little, they were quick tip, they were productivity quick tips. Okay. And I probably did, I don't know, eight or nine of them. You can go find most of them on YouTube now, if you go look for Bellasina as well, if you want to see them. But I did them to see what were people watching mm -hmm. out of the tips and see what I could glean out of them. And I noticed something very interesting. There were a couple of patterns out of the tips that people really liked and really responded to. One of them was when I called it, do you like it when your manager sets up a quick meeting? I put in air quotes, which freaks everyone out because they think they're getting fired. That yeah. had some of my highest engagement. I can't really figure out how to take that into anything else. One of my really viewed ones as well though was do you even need a to-do list? Hmm. I thought, 
okay, now this surprised me. And, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, huh. that, that, I would be off the rails if I didn't have a to-do list, but. Right. So why are so many people going, huh, do I need one? Interesting. And one of the things that has popped up, and this actually goes back to even some of the software research that we learned is for folks that are early stage career or just getting started in their career, still in college, the concept of a to-do list is a little different. Mm-hmm. Some of them are like, why would I need one? Why can't I just keep it all in my head? Yeah. And this actually eventually led to the genesis of some ideas, this and some of our other research. As we started talking about meetings and we started seeing what people were watching, we actually also were asking questions about who teaches you how to run a good meeting? Mm-hmm. So who taught you, Josh? Who taught you how to run a meeting? Oh, man. First, I would defer to the team to see whether I actually run a good meeting or not. Generally speaking, we follow like that L10 structure out of EOS. EOS. And I bet you didn't do that at the beginning of your career. No, not at the beginning of my career. I I don't know who actually taught me. I bet the answer is no one. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, most what we what we've learned when we start asking a lot of these questions, that's what our marketing efforts have been helping us with, is we're figuring out that in a lot of cases you weren't really taught a whole lot about meetings. You just start showing up at them when you get yeah. your first job, and you figure out what's going on based on what happens in that room, but it doesn't really get explained to you, nor do you really get told how to do it. And at some point, you just have to start doing it. Yeah, And you might move to a different department and you pick up what you like from that other manager, but nobody really explains these mystifying things called meetings. Yeah, And that has actually led to our second revenue stream that's going to be coming in a couple of months. Okay. Online training courses. Interesting. Go back to the beginning and explain meetings, some of these core concepts for folks that might not have a background where they're used to that. Or where we might want to say, oh, maybe we should be thinking about setting up different types of meetings in different ways. So that is actually where marketing has been super helpful is all the experiments we've been running on content and seeing what's getting engagement and seeing what we're hearing, what feedback we got allowed us from a product's perspective to start drawing some conclusions about things we needed to add so that it's not going to be purely a software play. There's also going to be a training play that's about skills not our product. Yeah. So all of this kind of came out of some of those insights that you started deriving from just early experimentation with video, with topics and things like that. That's really cool. There was like an analogy running through my head while you were talking about nobody teaches you how to do meetings. And that's like parenting. Nobody (laughs) teaches you how to be a parent. And a lot of times you rely on how you were brought up or in the case of meetings, like the meetings that you've participated in, then that's your kind of only frame for how meetings need to be run. And so you're just like, hey, I had a cool boss at that other job. I'm going to run the meetings that like that person did. And it's not always like best practice. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Or we set people up for failure. We hire someone in and, and we just go here, go do this thing. But we don't really tell them what that thing is and it it, it's very definitional and and it's only been in the last month or so that we've really been honing in on it what what we're going to start talking about you'll hear us talking about invisible expectations 
that we have for people. Like we hire them into our organization and they show up at that meeting and you're like, where's the agenda? And they're like, what? I was supposed to have an agenda. Did anyone tell them? Right. <laughs> they're like, oh. And so now you've made the person feel bad. There's all the other things that go along with that. Yeah. And so saying, what if we could just do some basic trainings that just became part of my intern program, my new hire program, just kind of run through these basics because who knows what people do and don't know based on their yeah. background and experiences and say, all right, let's level the playing field a little bit. Let's remove some of these invisible expectations from people. Be kind here. And then we can get them started off on the right foot. Yeah, I think that's great. Because running your first meeting is always a little bit nerve wracking, to say the least. Absolutely. It was a long time ago for me. I don't get nervous very much about running meetings anymore. But <laughs> I do remember some of some meetings where I've had to be the person who's really keeping everything together and it can get a little bit uh, nerve wracking. So absolutely cool. Founder of a SaaS company. One of the things that I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about because you're a female founder and PitchBook tracks the amount of capital raised by female founders. In 2019, it was less than 3% of the total capital. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious about what your experience has been as a female founder. I don't know if you've mm -hmm raised money if you're self-funding um, your project, but uh, just in general, how's your experience been as a female founder? Mm -hmm. So when I originally came up with the idea for building Bella, I was actually on some long-term SAP contracts and uh -huh. so that ones that I knew were going like a couple of years. Yeah. And so what I did is I took the revenue from my consulting business and used it to pay for the developers and the branding and pricing research and everything I would need. Because yeah. anyone will tell you SaaS software is a black hole of money. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can be. That's for yeah, sure. It really can be. It really can be. I, what I knew in all reality is not just because I was female, but I noticed that the market, because um, I'm also an angel investor, I knew that the market had really changed in the last number of years because it had moved away from probably seven, eight years ago, you could raise money on a concept deck. Yeah. That's a lot harder and people typically, and especially here, expect you to be further along and in this, especially in the software space, like you get some kind of MVP, get something out there to, to prove this is actually viable. So I knew that walking right out with an idea that was unfundable. If we're just totally yeah. honest, we're, we're in yeah. Minnesota. Right. <laughs> uh, but I was like pre-revenue on a concept, female founder. Yeah. We just can yeah. smile and go, yeah, not going to happen. And it, right. it, and it's not being jaded or anything. It just is the reality of what the statistics, just like what you mentioned. I would say on the go forward basis, the really interesting decision, and I'm in the middle of it right now, is do I fundraise or not? Yeah. Competitors are starting to show up on the landscape. They are starting mm -hmm. to figure out what I have figured out. Yeah. So the question is, do I fundraise because I need to beat them to the market and go faster? Yep. Do I fundraise in order to go faster? I'm on the fence right now. I'm more, yeah. I'm literally working through that decision right now, trying yeah. to figure out what are you going to do, Amber? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that is a tough decision. I will say in the, the water project that I was mm -hmm. involved in, we also grappled with that, ended up having competitors that raised millions, tens of millions of dollars and were able to accelerate beyond us. So I don't know. 
if that's applicable uh, in your case or not. But it, it is. Definitely, you know, it really is. It does matter uh, a lot of the time. So that's the tough decision. The, the moment you actually decide, if you decide to fundraise and you decide to take outside capital, the decisions change, right? And you have different people and different stakeholders involved yep. in things and you just need to be ready for it. And so I want to make sure I just make an educated decision before I go that route. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you actually have to go the VC route. You can go the angel route. There's new alternate financing type things that are are available. Mm -hmm. yep. There are different ways to finance it. And so that's actually what I'm trying to figure out what makes the most sense for me right yeah. now on the go forward. So everyone will have to stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be I'll be excited to to hear more about that. Good luck. That that's yeah. uh those are tough decisions to make. So as a founder, there's I'm sure plenty of people out there who have an idea about a software as a service, or maybe it's just an idea, or maybe they're actually moving down the road and executing on their idea. Do you have any advice at all that you could share with people like mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. One of the first things I would do, if you have this concept, this idea that you think needs to exist in the market, I would actually interview people in that target market to mm -hmm. better understand the pain points they're experiencing yeah. so that you can understand and start to figure out, are they going to be willing to pay for you? That's a, a really a big thing. And those interviews that you go back to may help you refine the idea or slightly, it may help you identify markets or how to what the really most important problems are. Because if you're actually going to start building something, one of the big problems I think all of us have is we try to build too much. Yeah. Feature creep. Yeah. We just, we throw it all in, but then we can only deliver a third of it. And then it doesn't really quite meet its fruition. And so the interviews and those conversations that you go back to, we ask a lot of open-ended questions in them. They help you go back to the most important problems mm -hmm. so that as you're going to go forward, you make sure you're really solving the critical problems. So yeah. I would say engaging some of those early folks that you can gather feedback from is probably the most important thing you can do at an early stage. Yeah, that's great advice. I totally ascribe to like that 80-20 rule. That is 80% of the value that somebody is sees in your software and is willing to pay for is going to come from that 20% of that core feature set. And the rest, you can build a little bit later. <laughs> Absolutely. You just got, it's the hardest part is figuring out what's that nugget? What's the golden nugget? What is that core feature set that will deliver that 80% of the value? Anyway, I think that's great advice. Cool. This has been really fun. I always love talking with you and we could probably go on for hours, but I'm really excited for what you're doing moving in the, as a founder in the software as a service space. We'll definitely continue to track your progress and see what you do with some of these decisions on your horizon. So I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Amber. Yep. Thank you for listening to the How I Work podcast with Josh Becerra. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe. To learn more about Agurian and for more digital marketing tips and insights, head to agurian.com.